Good afternoon and a welcome to FS Club members and partners and sponsors from here in London. And I'm delighted to have with me today uh, a real specialist, Harry Briggs of Terra Instinct. Now, Terra Instinct is a new firm and it's focused very much on helping people with sustainability and sustainability reporting in the asset management space. But Harry's got a great pedigree going back to a lot of work he's been doing as director of sustainability at KPMG, uh, largely working out of the Channel Islands, which is where I was very lucky to meet him through uh, one of uh, FS Club's uh, most active members, Bob McDowell. So welcome aboard, Harry, and we're delighted. And in fact, as I understand, you've moved uh, to the mainland UK and are dialing in from St. James's, is that correct? I am indeed, Michael. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to great. be here. Good. Well, we're delighted here because uh, what Harry's going to help us with today is an area that a lot of people see as secretive or distant. It's just not as public as the public markets. And that's private equity. And, and there's been quite a transformation in private equity. And what Harry's going to be chatting about today is you know, how is private equity actually making sustainability pay? Now, you'll know me. I'm Michael Minelli, one of the directors of Zien. But more importantly, our sponsors allow us to range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance. And it sure as heck is the case. And we're going to be solving all the world's big problems, SDGs, and all the sustainability issues. We've got to make economics and finance work. And private equity has long been a major segment of the asset management sector and one that is increasingly pulling its weight in this. So this subject today certainly brings together all of those aspects of the technologies, of the economics and the finance that we in FS Club enjoy talking about. Now today's format, you'll know uh, fairly well, our fairly traditional format, which is to try and be short and snappy in about 45 minutes. So my job is to get out of the way as quickly as possible so you can hear from our expert. Harry's going to present for about 20 minutes, um, and then there will be 20 minutes of questions and answers where we're relying on you to field uh, the questions and comments and observations, really, of your choice or things that you would like to share with us. And I will feed those into the conversation with Harry. So uh, three quick points of housekeeping, if I may. Uh, firstly, yes, this is being recorded, and the recording will be going up. Uh, probably late tomorrow afternoon, uh, so you can share it with friends and family over the weekend and watch it with popcorn. Uh, secondly, we will be uh, posting the slides. In fact, I believe they are already posted, um, so yes, there's a copy of the slides available. Uh, but finally, and most importantly, how do you participate? Uh, if you would use the GoToWebinar question facility, uh, just type your questions, observations, comments into the chat room, and I will feed them into a Q&A. Uh, discussion with Harry in the last 20 minutes. A pointer there, Harry will be getting all of the questions, comments, and observations with your email attached. So if you'd like a, a, a point of detail but don't want me to ask it, just slap it in there and he can get back to you afterwards. Or if you'd just like to contact him privately, just say I'd like to contact Harry. And of course, you can always thank him for doing a good presentation, uh, which I'm sure it will be. So whatever you'd like to chat about, just, just feed that in. And if something that you'd like to share with the audience, a particular report or book that you think is an issue, please, again, feel free to send that in. And finally, finally, uh, just a warning for you, uh, those of you who watch University Challenge, fingers on buzzers, please. We will, in fact, uh, have two polls that Harry's going to issue, asking you, the audience, what you think on a couple of topics. So with all that housekeeping out of the way, Harry, if I may, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Michael. Um, so, as, as Michael mentioned, I'm the founder of uh, Terra Instinct, and we provide outsourced sustainability reporting um, for asset managers and primarily private equity, um, which is a huge challenge when you've got um, privately owned portfolio companies. 
We also provide a number of advisory services around regulatory compliance with sustainability regulation that's coming through. But as, as Michael alluded to, I've had a long career working in the asset management sector and observing um, the developments in sustainability. And just by way of background in terms of what I've seen in this sector, um, I think it's fair to say that even as recently as three or four years ago, this was quite a niche topic within the private capital markets. And you generally only really had impact investors engaging with it. So out and out um, trying to make a, a sustainable impact on the world, like a renewable energy fund or something like that. But what's really changed over the last couple of years is that sustainability has become absolutely mainstream for all private equity managers. Um, where, regardless of what they're investing in, there has to be a layer now of responsible investment. Now, there are certain reasons for that, and regulation is, is absolutely one. So what I thought I'd do with you today is just talk through the fund life cycle, so kind of key stages at fundraising, pre-investment, post-investment, and just explain how sustainability is, is coming through at those different stages and, and what private equity managers are having to deal with at the moment. And importantly, how they're actually making it pay as well, because this can get lost as a compliance exercise, which is very costly, or it can become a value creation activity, um, which is really being jumped on at the moment by private equity. So if we go to the next slide, please, Peter. So I'm, I'm going to start just by giving a little bit of background to the regulation, and I'm going to focus in on, on Europe here as it's the most advanced. And this is where um, it really comes to the fore during the fundraising stage. So what we have is uh, regulation coming through in multiple jurisdictions, so not just Europe, the UK is very closely behind them. And even in the US, we're starting to see regulation coming through from the SEC. But Europe is definitely the uh, front runner in terms of sustainability regulation. And there's a, a piece that is very specific to investment funds, which is called the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, or SFDR. Now, this isn't a regulatory seminar, so I'm going to keep this pretty brief. But essentially, there are three classifications within SFDR for any fund. You can be an Article 6 fund, an 8 fund, or a 9 fund. Now, Article 6 means you don't do anything with sustainability, you don't consider it at all, you just go about your business investing for financial return. Article 8 means that you're investing for financial return still, so you'll invest in normal trading companies, but you're applying a layer of responsible investment, which means you're taking sustainability into consideration in the normal operations of those businesses. And Article 9 is what I alluded to before, where you're an out-and-out -out impact fund. So it's not just financial return you're seeking there, you're seeking to make a positive impact on the environment or society. So this regulation is fairly recent, and actually it's only partway through um, its rollout. There's two phases to it, the next phase comes in next year. But the first phase basically forced large um, asset managers and, and large private equity in particular to classify their funds into one of these three buckets. And that came through in March 2021. And what we can see on this graph here is that in the first cut of data after that regulation came in, which was in June 21, so three months after it came in, only 34% of all funds that were available for sale across the EU were qualified as Article 8 or 9. So only 34% of funds on capital was actually being used as a sustainable fund. So they were applying that level of uh, responsible investment. Now I've, I've merged eight and nine there, but nine is roughly 4% of, of the uh, total eight and nine bucket. So the majority of what I'm talking about here is article eight. What you can see from that line is as we progress through the months to the year ending June 22, 
the amount of capital invested in Article 8 and 9 funds actually surpassed the amount of capital invested in Article 6 funds for the first time. And that's massively significant. So that is a huge shift of billions, if not trillions, of euros into funds that then consider responsible investment as part of their day-to-day -day investment activity. Now, that was achieved through new funds being launched and going straight into the Article um, 8 or 9 category, but also a mass reclassification of funds where existing funds that didn't consider sustainability suddenly put in place a policy and started executing that policy to sort of go back through the portfolio and, and start engaging with the portfolio on sustainability. So already in the space of a year, quite quietly, we've seen this massive upsurge in sustainability um, across the private equity sector and we're seeing that coming through um, in a number of different ways as well so for example recruitment has been really interesting in this space so it was a very niche job to be the head of sustainability at a private equity firm four years ago you'd be very hard pressed to find one or anyone in a private equity general partner that would actually know anything about sustainability now there's some of the most sought after people in the market and you even have large american private equity firms paying heavily to recruit heads of uh, sustainability. So Blackstone and TPG, for example, have both been in the market recently recruiting um, a head of sustainability. Um, and there's very few people out there that can do that job. So it's an extremely difficult market to recruit in at the moment. Um, and it's just one example of how, how they're seeing this adding value through the process. So during fundraising, what becomes interesting is that the asset owners who give the private equity firms the money have jumped on SFDR as a labeling regime. And it's now becoming quite common, especially in Europe for European asset owners, to say they won't allocate capital to any fund that is an Article 6 fund. They will only allocate if it's an Article 8 fund or an Article 9 fund. So that again is just driving the market and this regulation has really helped them make that process very, very simple. And again, that explains why we're seeing that line trending up. When you look at the quarterly data for fundraisers and new fundraisers, about 70%, 65-70% of fund inflows, so new funds that are being launched and raising money, is going into Article 8 or 9 funds. So essentially what that means is we can expect that yellow line to trend up to around the 65-75% level um, over the next sort of 12 to 18 months. And that will have a, a huge impact on the economy because these regulations push you to actually take action on sustainability in your portfolio, which is entirely the point of them. Um, and actually from a, a regulatory point of view, it's an incredibly successful piece of regulation. It's very quickly changed the economy in Europe almost overnight. So that's the fundraising stage. Um, so essentially, our, if, if you're a private equity manager, you're going to struggle to raise money now if you're not taking sustainability into account. That's the key message there. So if we now move on to the next slide, we talk a little bit around what private equity is actually doing once they've raised money. So you, you set your fund up, you've made it an articulate fund, you've got money from your pension funds and insurers, and now you need to go and deploy that capital. Um, but you've got these regulatory requirements on you now because you've said that you're going to take responsible investment into account. So what does that mean in practice? So pre-investment, when you're doing your due diligence, it's now becoming commonplace, if not mandatory, uh, for many firms to execute sustainability due diligence. In addition to typical due diligence, they would do financial due diligence, regulatory, tax due diligence, those kind of things. 
So new investments are now commonly getting uh, sustainability due diligence. And we're seeing that coming through in all the consulting firms. So if you look at any of the big four, they're building out huge teams to provide sustainability due diligence to their clients in this space. <clears throat> now, what does that look like? So there's two aspects to it. Um, it's looking at what are the sustainability related risks to an investment and what are the opportunities. And this is where you can start to see uh, value creation opportunities coming through. So from a risk perspective, you're generally looking for scenarios where sustainability poses such a risk that the cash flows of that business may be jeopardized in the future and therefore the value of that investment may be jeopardized in the future. What you're typically not finding is that private equity won't invest in something because it has a negative sustainability impact. Being honest, they're not too bothered about that. They're only really bothered when the valuation gets hit as a result of it. Now, there's two sides to that coin. So one is uh, the example I've given here where, and it's a real example, where there was an analysis of a, a company that I believe was in the steel industry. And they had done absolutely nothing to do with sustainability or their carbon footprint at all. They hadn't even measured it or considered it. However, that sector was dominated by five players. They were one of the five players and the other four had all taken fairly significant action on their manufacturing process to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions of it. So at that point, you had a huge disparity between the, the target and the other four major players in that industry. And actually the costs of bringing that target in line with the other four competitors meant that it wasn't worth buying the asset at that valuation because in the meantime you're going to lose market share because customer trends will push towards um, suppliers that can provide lower emission products because often the customers are under their own regulatory pressures and their own reporting responsibilities so that's one example where a private equity house didn't buy an, uh, an asset because of its sustainability credentials and it was because they saw a direct impact to the valuation as a result. On the flip side of that, what they are looking for quite heavily are those companies that have a poor performing sustainability record but where they can improve them and add value during that process. Now, an example I just gave, the cost of adding value to them there uh, wasn't worth it because by the time they would have done that, the competitors were already in that position anyway. So all you've done is achieve some level of parity with the, the rest of the market. In other scenarios, though, you can, if the other competitors of that company hadn't taken any action, you could be a first mover, an early mover. You could address your sustainability credentials as a trading company in whatever sector you might be in. And that will create a competitive advantage for you and there'll be a cash flow benefit to that. So that's what they're looking for in terms of value creation. There are also a lot of cost savings coming through and increasing examples of this where a lot of companies that have you know, perhaps grown organically, own and managed companies, they're focused on their revenue. They've not focused so much on their costs and they've not focused so much on their waste and byproducts. So quite a lot of the time there's opportunities around repurposing waste from a process or manufacturing activity and using that to generate energy and creating a kind of circular economy effect and that lowers your energy costs. And at the moment, that's obviously particularly important. Um, so there are a lot of opportunities just on the expenses side of the PL as well as on the, uh, the revenue side. And it's these opportunities that are being analyzed at the due diligence stage um, and are leading to heavily influencing investment decisions. And increasingly, we're seeing um, businesses with poor sustainability records being very attractive to certain firms who are using it as a value creation opportunity.
So if we move to the next slide, then we can talk about what happens once you've bought the business. Oh, sorry, I forgot, we have a poll. Um, so this is a, a sentiment test, if you like. Um, there's a series of statements here, um, basically asking what you most agree with and what your view is on whether value can be added or not. So if I give you a couple of minutes just to, to read through those and select your answer. I don't think it'll take a couple of minutes, Harry, that <laughs> the audience is a very opinionated one. So just give us a second. We're up to 50% of the audience have voted. Um, folks, are, folks are very good. I think you're gonna find this interesting. Great, well up to three quarters of the audience. Just leave it open a few more seconds. There we go. And uh, we'll, we'll shut that down and show you the results. So uh, there you go, 55% are for both B and C, ignoring and addressing. Okay, that's interesting. I'm quite surprised by that, actually. Um, usually, there's, usually there's a lot more uh, skepticism in audiences when I present on these topics. So perhaps this is becoming a little bit more mainstream. Very interesting. Okay, so next stage then. So if your project firm, you've raised your capital, you're deploying responsible investment during the investment process, you've acquired an asset, what do you do with it now? So this is really the bread and butter of um, these new sustainability teams that are emerging in all these private equity firms. This is um, a large part of my work as well, is where I engage in this process um, at various different stages to help them. And it's uh, a sort of whole ownership long um, journey that they go on. So the first step is identifying material sustainability issues. So the regulations themselves will push a fund to, to report at a kind of aggregate basis for the entire portfolio on certain metrics like their greenhouse gas emissions, their water usage, their wastage. Um, but actually those particular topics will be relevant or not relevant for each individual portfolio company. And if you're the management of the portfolio company, you need something specific to you um, because you need to know what your top four or five issues are so that you can go ahead and um, start addressing them and managing them. So first step is doing that materiality assessment and then you've got to measure it and gather the data to do that. So data gathering is a, a huge field and you're looking for actual data because you care about what's actually happening in your business. So you're not using proxies and data providers here you're in an individual trading company. So you're going out, you're getting the invoices for travel and your energy utility bills, you're calculating emissions and you're understanding where the performance is coming from, from a sustainability perspective. Once you've got that, you can then move on to the next stage, which means you understand your impacts. Now you can start generating a strategy for dealing with it. So first you need to determine where you want to be on those particular issues. So if you take greenhouse gas as the obvious example, an objective to get to net zero is pretty common and pretty standard place now. So straight away, that's your metric you've measured, you understand what your emissions are, you understand where you're trying to get to, and now you need to build out a roadmap of how you actually go and get there. So if you're a manufacturing business, that might involve engaging with engineers, for example, around your machinery and leakages. Methane leakage is a huge issue in industrial processes, for example. Um, so you're going to have to go through a series of different actions, pinpointing where the kind of key uh, sustainability performance is, is hiding. And you're going to have to go out and engage with people to address that. 
monitoring is then the obvious next step. So you've got your strategy in place, you've got your roadmap there, <clears throat> people are going off and doing it, working away, addressing those issues. You need some sort of uh, periodic remeasurement of those metrics to see that performance coming through. And that's the reporting piece. So you as a portfolio company will measure and report your metrics up to your fund, which is invested in you. The fund will aggregate those metrics and report them to their investors. And any poor performance will be picked up at that stage. And that's where you can differentiate between how good you are as a private equity manager versus other private equity managers. And then the final stage is, is where the, the rubber really hits the road because what you want to see is that that exit, you're going to get a better valuation as a result of having taken all of those actions. Now that might be because your EBITDA is higher because you've increased your competitive advantages as a business, so you're generating more revenue. Perhaps you've lowered your costs because you're recycling energy and, and going through the, um, the circular economy piece. And also what we see is that on the due diligence side, if you do assess a company as having uh, strong sustainability credentials, where you would typically get a, an EBITDA multiple range for any given investment, having clean sustainability credentials pushes you higher up that range. Now, at the moment, that's fairly anecdotal. Um, there's endless surveys of managers that say they pay more for a, a well-performing investment. Um, and there's various work streams going on through different academic bodies to try and get some sort of quantifiable evidence of that. So it is a little bit anecdotal at the moment, but that's where you want to see the benefits coming through um, when you exit and get that higher multiple. Um, and I think we've got a final poll now just to see what people's final views are on the next slide. We do indeed, great. So this is um, basically taking account of everything I've just said and the regulations, whether you see this as some sort of fad or whether you see this as a, a change that's here to stay, fundamental shift in our economy maybe. And again, a very fast voting audience. Uh, Almost everybody's voted, and let's have a look at those results. Um, wow! So, yeah, very so. friendly audience. So, well, so I mean, generally, when I do these kind of polls, uh, I'm I'm met with a lot of skepticism. Um, but actually, that's been changing recently. So I think this is really coming through now in the mainstream. Um, so yeah, yeah, that was a quick and snappy. So thank you very much for your time, everybody. Well, that's super. We've got quite a few questions here, folks. Please do uh, type in questions and comments. And Harry, yeah, I, I guess the interaction, mind you, FS Club people do tend to be a bit, you know, on the frontier and advancing, but, you know, it very much supports your thesis. At least we're mainstream, if it's not yet wholly mainstream. Um, but there's still a few questions. Um, Patty uh, Maloney is, is curious, and I think this goes back to the slide that you showed um, in fact, if you just want to whip back to that slide, Peter, that's the regulation, regulation is labels slide, which has the graph. Um, he, he's curious about, do we know the percentage of capital in Article 9 funds at the moment, or at least until June 22? Referencing your point was about 4%, you said, in June 21. Do you, do you have a stab in the dark? Um, yeah, in June 22, I think it was 4.7% from memory. Oh, so it hadn't gone up that much then? No, no, interestingly not. And that's because it's, um, I think there's always going to be a niche area because 
you're in a world where financial return isn't the sole objective in Article 9. You're looking for sustainable return as well. Um, and that's that's quite hard to justify for any asset owner to sac potentially sacrifice some financial return. Okay, so it's at the moment it's Article 8 driven, really, but it's still, still impressive. Okay, that's good. Um, now, uh, Paul Phillips is curious. I think this is a really interesting question. You may say it's a bit off topic, but you might need to speculate. Is this degree of sophistication in making an assessment of asset value evident to the same degree in real estate assets, such as, you know, real estate investment trusts or REITs, as we call them? Yeah, it's an interesting field. So, again, there's no hard numbers in terms of analyzing, um, you know, REIT share price or anything like that and being able to split out the value associated to sustainability. But certainly, um, the sustainability credentials of buildings is a factor that I'm increasingly seeing coming through on um, RIC's surveyor valuation reports. Um, and it tends to focus in again on cash flow. So what's the operational efficiency of the building? How is that going to impact the cash flow? What can you get as a kind of lease premium for that building uh, as a result of that? Um, and obviously now is a, a very good time to be releasing a, an operationally efficient building. It's very attractive right now. Mm. This maybe just say it's out of, out of scope, but I, I'm just a little curious as well. Bream and the various uh, rating systems for new builds have been widely criticized, not really having been validated that they were kind of in an ideal world, this is a good idea. And that may have been a great place to start, but we're now beginning to see portfolios with, you know, real activities and what's the correlation between recommendations and what actually results. Uh, is that taking a beating or are people putting more effort into looking at those types of real outcomes as opposed to projected? Yeah, there's, um, Increasing focus both in commercial real estate, and I'm actually involved in a, an organization that, that does this in the um, house building sector in the UK. Oh. There isn't sort of standardized, reliable metrics at the moment, um, but there's work streams to Im improve and develop them. And Green's a good example. And they, they had to, in fairness to them, there wasn't anything they could really relate to in terms of regulations. So they had to kind of create a scheme themselves. Um, which they did for the commercial world, but they've also done it through the housing quality mark for residential development as well. Um, Bream certainly tries to go beyond what regulation requires. And it's not trying to say that if you don't get the top Bream mark, you're not a sustainable house. It's just trying to give you some way of differentiating between uh, different buildings. But it's it's definitely under development, and Gresby are uh, an organisation that's involved in, in rating commercial real estate as well, um, and they're developing out their methodologies to try and make them comparable. Okay, um, Christopher Gleedle, who's a, quite a regular here and very much into systems theory and all, has a bit of a I'm afraid it's kind of a discussion question, so uh, I'll, I'll throw it at you. But uh, uh, Chris is good good on these. Is not the main issue with understanding and creating a materiality roadmap that it's created using reductionist linear methods and thus does not view the relationship between the various fragmented sustainability projects and thus the reality to Chris is value destruction or value missed. Uh, is that greater than the value creation perceived? So is that getting at the relationship between different sustainability issues 
yes not being considered essentially in that yeah um it's a good point and certain firms are are pushing methodologies that try to identify the relationship between different topics as part of the materiality assessment none of the standard setters in that world have, have addressed that issue um so it's interesting when you look at something like gri which is the, the world's most used sustainability reporting standards or the new issb um, standards that have come out none of them actually address relationships between different sustainability topics and how they interact i think inevitably as a result there is going to be a missed opportunity there because um, you could easily deem something that in isolation is not significant and you can ignore it but in turn that could be influencing something much more significant so i think that's a fairly good point and i, but I just think there's no methodologies um, to do that in a kind of consistent way at the moment okay um a question really coming from me um i i, I and i then i express this in a way that doesn't make it sound like i'm one side it's really an open question a lot of investment in these areas is going to involve new technology. And let's pick something like um, uh, sustainable timber, these laminated timbers that are now all the rage and we can build larger buildings. And that's great. Uh, really interesting stuff. People are doing some wonderful uh, approaches to it, but it's got a lot of technology risk. You now we find out that cosmic rays affected 15 years from now or it turns out the laminates delaminate or or whatever. Uh, and I would like, if I was doing a private equity investment, to say, well, look, at the time in 2022, I was doing the right thing, but the outcome didn't come out. What are your thoughts on how these types of rigorous approaches might prevent people taking uh, technology risks and some of them won't come off? Um, well, I guess first, I think, you're right in what you say, there absolutely is technology risk. And this has opened up an entire industry of, of new technologies. Um, you gave a good example of the wood. I was just thinking I went to have a, a tour of something called the Z House um, about a month ago, which is a completely sustainable house that Barrett Homes had built up in Salford. And it uses a, a series of different niche technologies um, to mundane things like solar panels, but as you walk through the house you've got um infrared panels recycled carpets recycled paint recycled steel fiber roof tiles and all these sort of things um none of which have been tested to the extremities um and so yeah like whilst you walk through and think this is a venture capitalist dream there's lots of things you can invest in here and scale up very quickly um it definitely comes with that risk so you're right to call it out um but i would say that that creates an opportunity for certain um, certain investors who have more technology risk experience than others um, and ultimately those private equity investments are always looking for um, you know credible returns but obviously that comes with incredible risk as well so I just think you need to get the risk adjusted return expectations correct and you need to be looking at more niche um, private equity specialists or venture capital specialists for a lot of this actually um, who, who are able to take that risk mm -hmm. more, more intelligently perhaps. Um, when we were chatting in the green room I, I had a suspicion something like this might come up so uh, my credit goes to Zoe Fresh and Pollard. Uh, Zoe's asking 
Are there any similar systems in place in the UK to the EU's sustainability finance disclosure regulations? Uh, and do you expect impact funds with those in Article 9 to become more prominent in the coming years here in the UK? Um, okay, so yes, the UK are bringing out their own version of the EU sustainable finance disclosure regulation. Um, so the FCA was actually supposed to consult on it in Q2 of this year, but they've had to delay it, I think, because of um, Ukraine and various sanctions and actions they're having to take there. So those um, UK version regulations are coming through for consult in autumn of this year. Um, the expectation is that they will be a level of equivalence to what we've seen in the EU. We know they're going to be slightly different. Um, so the EU used three categories for their fund labelling. The UK have already said they're going to use five, for example, um, but they broadly map into the same categories. Um, and the requirements that will fall on them are expected to be similar in terms of the level of disclosure. Mm -hmm. um, so I do think the UK will move broadly in line with the um, EU. We're starting to see green sheets in the US as well. So they're looking at um, greenhouse gas uh, disclosure requirements for the financial services sector in, in the US. They have suggested and quietly consulted on um, an ESG fund labeling regime as well, uh, which is like an anti-greenwashing regulation in the US. So they're not quite as far behind as you expect them to be. Um, but yeah, we're definitely gonna see it in the UK. In terms of Article 9 and whether we think that will grow, um, in all honesty, I, I don't. I think we will sort of see um, a distribution curve where I think Article 6 will settle at one end as about 15-20% of funds and will slowly dwindle over time. The bulk will be then in the Article 8 funds in the middle. And I think we're always going to have a fairly niche sort of 5%. It might grow, it might grow to 6-7%, but I think it's going to grow. I don't, I don't think it'll hit double digits anytime soon, to be honest. And that's because of this point around um, uh, investing for a, a social purpose. So it's not just about financial return. It's absolutely that you can have a financial return in an Article 9 fund, but you also have to achieve something in addition to that. Um, so it just limits that investment world. You know, you're going to have to invest in something with a social objective and an environmental objective over and above financial return um, in order to, to classify as an Article 9 fund. So I think it won't dwindle, it might grow a little, but not, not hugely. Just, just treat this as a gentle tickle. I'm not trying to embarrass you, but you know, I'm, I'm going to ask you, you, I would argue, would benefit from a more complex system. Ah, well, there are five systems in the five, well, category, there's three in Europe and all that. But looking from beyond that, what genuine advantage is there in the UK having a different standard than a major market like the EU? Is it just not added complexity what are, what are we doing that's better I, I, I agree with that criticism um, I don't necessarily see if you're going for a regulation that's broadly going to be equivalent having it as close to the existing regulation as possible would actually be very helpful for market participants particularly when in practice if you're an asset manager in London you're probably going to be raising money in multiple jurisdictions in the EU and the UK so having two sets of regulations that are broadly there to achieve the same thing, but in subtly different ways, isn't especially helpful. Although you are right, people like my, my good self do benefit from that. Um, 
Nice. No, I, 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 I appreciate your candor on it. That's good. Uh, we got we got quite a few questions here, so I'll try and speed up if I can. It's a very vibrant audience out here today. Uh, Hugh Purser, and and I guess somewhat related to the previous question, how close is the exit stage sustainability criteria to the uh, FT, you know, ESG ratings, pussy for good ratings, things like that? How close is it? So I think that's asking about the, the due diligence process that I, I talked about that, that gets done. Right, okay. Um, right, so I I personally am not a huge fan of the ESG ratings that you get on public companies from the ratings providers. I think there's a huge amount of work to be done in order to um, clean up those ratings. And I think periodically they come in for a lot of criticism when people see oil companies highly rated and things like that. And I think there's certain, there was one the other day where Gazprom was rated very highly in one of the rating agencies, even though it's obviously helping to fund a, a war in, in Ukraine. And that's because they are algorithmic ratings driven um, by data that's publicly available that hasn't necessarily been audited um, and can get massively skewed very quickly. So what we see in the private capital world is subjective asset specific evaluations taking place that are far more relevant, far more actionable. Um, and I think it's safe to make investment decisions based on those private. Okay. Uh, John Taylor processes versus. Uh, sorry, sorry, Michael, what's up? Yeah, no, I think we got uh, John Taylor uh, had sort of two questions really. Um, one was, uh, have you been working closely with EBRD or other IFIs, you know, investment, uh, sorry, um, you know, other uh, banks for development? Uh, just, just have a quick one there because you know they've been into the sustainability area of projects for, in many ways, much longer than other people. Have you had dealings um, with? Not, not directly. Um, so I work with a number of forums um, that pick up on, on various aspects of this and there's certain asset owner networks um, that they feed into. So I, I kind of come across them vicariously, but not, not directly. Okay. And uh, probably another thing, John was curious about the uh, Article 8, 9 and also the proposed UK ones. Um, are they E? Are they E and S? Or are they actually E, S and G? Uh, the latter. So when, um, you know, I, I always use the, the phrase sustainability, but there's a huge kind of jargon issue in this this world around what does ESG mean, what does sustainability mean? I, I use sustainability because that's what the regulations use. Um, so that's becoming part of the common vernacular in this space. Um, but when they talk about it, they mean it in a very holistic sense. So what are the governance credentials, what are the social credentials, and what are the environmental credentials? Mm -hmm. And the EU kind of broader regulatory landscape i've honed straight in on sfdr because that's the the fund piece but that ties in with the, the wider eu taxonomy and something called the corporate sustainability reporting directive which um is if you like the listen regulated company directive that's coming through in the eu and that's going to capture fifty thousand corporate businesses in the eu and force them to report their sustainability credentials Mm -hmm. And those standards are very robust. There's 13 of them already out for uh, the consultation just closed on them and there'll be another tranche next year. So these 50,000 companies will have to report on those right across the board, board in terms of anything to do with ESG. 
um, and have to get them audited. So this is also a huge play for the uh, audit providers out there um, as well. But yeah, so when, when I talk about sustainability, I mean uh, everything under the ESG umbrella, basically. Um, obviously, you get a system like this going on private equity, uh, but not all private equity type investment is actually done in the private sector. Oddly, and one could argue a lot of local authority investment. Do you, do you think the UK authorities, having set up a system like that, might say to uh, let's take local authorities? There'd be a wider range of government entities, but that's not a bad one to look at and say you have to apply uh, this FD, SFDR type approach to your projects. Yeah, and I think um, we'll start to see that coming through. So certainly, in the UK has already moved forward with. with just climate disclosures and they've done that across the board so um, that's not just through the FCA they've done it through Bayes they've hit pension funds and pension regulator as well um, so I think there has been a bit of outcry around public uh, sector activity and there's going to be an increase in reporting coming through from there for sure. Okay. Um, uh, Sydney Yangson who uh, who's got a, a rich career but uh, quite interesting given the previous uh, question is a councillor with the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea. Uh, nevertheless, asking a question in one of his other roles, uh, given the extra costs involved in ensuring that a portfolio company and its suppliers report their KPI sustainability metrics, how are private equity fund managers ensuring that customers are happy to pay a premium for the products provided by their portfolio companies over competitor products that are not legally bound by the EU rules? Uh, so this is products at the portfolio company level, so the revenue piece that I was referring to. Um, yeah, it's difficult. Um, it depends on whether there's um, already those options available in the market for yeah. that trading company, but you can easily see that competitor or something like that is doing or a smaller player. Um, I think we're getting to a point now, though, where it's so mainstream, um, it's not especially... Um, risky to take a bet in a lot of areas. It depends on who the buyers are. So if the buyers of that company's product are large corporates, they're going to be under huge pressure themselves um, for, from their own investors and their own uh, regulations. So they're always going to sort of trend towards sustainability. If it's a B2C type scenario, um, then that, that is more variable. Um, so again, I've mentioned I'm doing some work with the UK house building sector and actually recognizing the value of sustainable houses in the UK housing market is incredibly difficult because um, people at the moment there isn't really data to prove that people will pay for more energy efficient homes even though there's a cash flow saving. Um, so yeah it does vary by sector um, but certainly for the, the B2C world it's, um, it's generally sort of accepted wisdom. Okay. We're going to try and squeeze in two questions, so we'll have to do it quick. Uh, but um, one from Clive Bullen, just, you know, what are the main areas that are, are actually being invested in by these uh, PE sustainability funds? Is it things like making a difference on carbon capture, packaging, oceans, water, food, land use? Uh, do you see any kind of two or three top levels? So for Article 8 funds, the sectors they invest in haven't changed. So they are carrying out their normal investment activity and their normal sector specialism, and they're just throwing sustainability into the mix as they do that. Um, and that's why it's captured such a big portion of the market. But Article 9 funds and the growth that we are seeing there, um, they are the ones that are jumping straight in on the 
transition, if you like, in the economy to decarbonize. So there's a huge amount of technology investment going on um, around the topics we talked about earlier. Um, anything that helps decarbonize, anything that helps reduce waste um, and waste in terms of water as well as sort of actual um, physical landfill, etc. They're the kind of areas, anything that helps you on the net zero journey is um, pretty much gold dust at the moment for investors if you're an Article 9 fund. But say if you're Article 8, you just carry on investing in what you were doing before. And last question from Nikki Holtzhausen. Uh, we had a fascinating webinar yesterday with Simon Lamb on this continuing problem of ecosystem services and valuation, et cetera. Uh, Nikki's kind of curious, what measures have started to be used by uh, venture capital projects relating to nature-based value add? Oof, nature-based. So that's very difficult um, from a metrics perspective. Um, and there's a lot of good work going on with the, uh, the TNFD. Um, who are collaborating with the both the EU and the ISSB to try and sort of nail down some of the metrics there. Um, I think what you see is at the due diligence stage, you look at more, I guess, at a higher level of topics related to um, biodiversity. So anything that has a sort of deforestation element to it is, is not good unless there's a, a reforestation play as part of that process. Um, anything that is sort of destructive to land in any way or polluting in any way um, comes up as negative, but it stays quite high level. Um, and if you find those issues, then you get down into the, the detail of it in terms of, is there an opportunity there to address that? So reforestation as part of the, the process. Um, and then you get into the kind of cash flow element of it and what's the cost of that and will the business be competitive at the end of it? Um, mm but it's, it's a really difficult area, nature-based and, and biodiversity metrics. Wow. Well, as ever, the natural resource we consume most swiftly seems to be time, and I'm afraid we have run to time. So if I may, uh, three, three quick rounds of thanks. Firstly, uh, before us all here, our sponsors, uh, we thank you enormously for your interest and your tolerance and allowing us to range widely and freely, and I think today we've exemplified that. Uh, secondly, I'd like to thank the audience. Uh, your questions were super. We didn't get around to a couple, but they will all uh, get over to Harry and he can have a look at them and get back to you. Uh, you'll notice we've got quite a rich program ahead. As ever, uh, do look at the website. Uh, we've got um, an interesting bit on uh, SFDR coming up on the 1st of September where the proposition is that this is unsustainable uh, as a cost, but let's let, let's come to that. Uh, and we'll have some interesting things ahead. But most of all, Harry, I'd like to thank you. Uh, it's been a delight to have you on. Uh, you've spoken most cogently into time and answered a heck of a lot of questions, which is great. Um, we wish you the very best in your new venture. Um, we hope, on the other hand, that the regulatory reporting is very simple, uh, although you may wish the other way around. Uh, to say thanks here, I, I, the question for Wood was somewhat biased. I have here our technology sustainable applause meter Thank you on behalf of the audience, but thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. Thanks for hosting me.